0: Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Good. It's good to be with you again. Uh, Welcome back to all of you traveling spring breakers. Uh, Great to have you with us. Good to be back with you again. Uh, My family and I were actually gone uh, last weekend as well. And if you're just joining us, we're in the midst of a series right now called This Is Us. And the idea behind it is we're looking at… there are all these characters in the Old Testament And if you really look at their lives, the amazing thing about their lives is that they point to the bigger story that the Bible is telling, and that's the story of Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest need that we have. He is the greatest need our world has. And so we've been examining how each one of these individual characters points to the person of Jesus, and we've been asking, where do we see ourselves in their story and in their lives? And how does God want to use our lives and our stories to tell the bigger story of Jesus in our world? And so that's what we've been examining. If you were here last week, Brad did a great job looking at the story of Ruth. And so today I want to continue that discussion. We're going to look at the story of Job in the Bible So you've never read the book of Job. Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible, perhaps the oldest, the very first one that was ever actually written down. It's 42 chapters long. It's it's a very long book of the Bible. So I think a great way to start is just to start at the beginning, right right at the very first verse. So this is Job 1, verse 1. This is how the book of Job starts. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Okay, so the way the the book of Job begins is with this guy named Job who is living an incredibly blessed life. He's a righteous man. He He has honored God for his entire life, and God has blessed him. I mean, come on, 3,000 camels, 7,000 sheep. In case you you, you didn't pick up on that, in the ancient Near East, that means this guy is loaded. God has unbelievably blessed him in his life. And so he's living this great life. That's Job. Now, I don't know if any of the rest of you are like me. Here's the way I read a book. Every book I read, this is what I do. I will open it and I will read the first paragraph of the book. And then I will flip to the very back and I will read the very last paragraph of the book. Does anybody else a weirdo like me and do that? Only a few of you do that? Really? Seriously? Okay, well, I'm the one talking today, so we're going to do what I do. All right, so I, I read that first paragraph, and then I flip to the very last chapter of the book. So this is the last chapter, chapter 42 of the book of Job. This is the last paragraph, starting in verse 12. It says this, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part, He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. In case you're keeping track, that's twice as much as he had in the first paragraph of the book. He literally gets a double portion. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima. She invented some breakfast food. The second, Keziah. And the third, Karen. Let's just call her Karen. Uh, Next one. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers, which was an unusually progressive thing to do in the ancient Near East. After this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man and full of years. Now, so, so what I want you to see here is that the end of Job, the, the latter part of his life, Job continues to live this incredibly blessed life. God in fact gives him twice as much as he had in the beginning. He's just this, Job could be the most blessed man that ever exists in the entire Bible. He's also one of the longest living, he lives for 140 years and in that time he lives long enough to see his grandchildren to the fourth generation. So this is a, a guy who lived an unbelievably long and blessed life, probably more blessed than anybody else in the scriptures. But there is this one little itty bitty part of Job's life that is full of pain and heartache and devastation and loss and grief. And it's this one little itty bitty part of his life that makes up the book of Job. Job. And the reason I start there, the reason I wanted to start there this morning is because when we read the book of Job, what happens is we we can't help ourselves. It raises a question for us. The question that you cannot help but ask when you read the book of Job is this question. Why? Why? Why is life so unfair? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow suffering and heartache and loss. You look around at our world, that's the brokenness that we see. If God is really God, if he's really so good, why is there so much pain and brokenness and suffering? But but here's what we tend to do. When we read the book of Job, we only tend to ask one side of the why question. So we ask, why is there suffering? Why was life so unfair? But we don't ask the question, why was God so good to Job? I mean, seriously, the guy is blessed more than anybody else in the Bible. He's one of the longest living people in the Bible. His life was unbelievably blessed. Nobody says why, I just don't get it. Why was God so unfairly good to Job? And that's the thing. I just kind of, my point is, I think if we're gonna ask the why question, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think we should really ask it. We should ask both sides of the why question. Not just why is there suffering, But why is there joy? Why is there good? Why is there beauty? Why is there pleasure? Why does God allow those things? I mean, really, do we really think that somehow we're entitled to those things, but then we're, you know, undeserving of the other? Is that really what we think about ourselves? And we do this. We ask one side of the why question of ourselves. Even when we look at our own lives and the events that, tr- that happen in our lives, we only ask one side of the why question. A couple weeks ago, I got a text message out of the blue from a guy uh, who's part of our church. Uh, I, I love this guy. He, he actually accepted Christ, I want to say three, maybe it was three years ago, at a Christmas service. we had this time at the end of the service where he stood up with a group of people. He'd been invited and he surrendered his life to Jesus. And ever since that moment where he gave his life to Christ, man, his life has just been unbelievably blessed. I was... uh privilege to be able to do the wedding ceremony for he and his wife a few months later, and um, uh, they got baptized here. God blessed him with a new job. He wasn't even expecting that he would ever be able to get this job, and it happened. Uh, he and his wife were able to conceive, and they had a baby, and that's been a huge blessing in their life. Um, he got uh, even this house that came about. Like they weren't, they weren't thinking they were gonna be able to afford this house, but there's kind of a story there that, that God worked in their favor and they were able to get this house. I mean, God has just blessed this guy unbelievably since he, ever since he gave his life to Christ. Out of the blue, a couple weeks ago, I get a text message from him and here's what the text message said. Hadn't heard from him in a while. And the text message said, Brian, on my way to work this morning, a deer jumped out in front of my car and I, I hit this deer and it totaled my car. And we don't have money for a new car or whatever. And he said, I I just want you to tell me, why would God allow that to happen? Why would God allow that to happen in my life? And so we talked about that. We went back and forth for a minute on text and talked about that. And, And here's the thing, I'm not bust on him at all. He's going to listen to this sermon, I'm sure. So there's nothing about that that's wrong or bad. But what occurred to me after that conversation was over was I thought about how I, in all the years since he accepted Christ, I have never gotten a text message for him where he was like, Brian, here's the deal. God blessed us with a house. I have no idea how we got this house. It's an unbelievable blessing. We prayed for it and God did it. Why did God do that for me? Why was God so good to me and gave me this house? (laughs) I've never gotten that text message. Why did God allow us to be able to have a child? Why did God give me this new job? He's never asked that. And here's the thing, I'm not busting on him at all. I, I do the exact same thing. I look at my life, and it's almost like whenever blessings fall in my life, I just kind of go, yeah, there you go, and move on. But whenever something bad happens, whenever something unexpected happens that's, it's, you know, tragic in my life, it's immediately like, God, why would God do that? Yesterday, in this room... There was a funeral memorial service for a wonderful woman of God who's part of our church for years, and uh, she is now with Jesus. I did her wedding in January, a couple months ago. And if you were there at her wedding, if if you were part of, of her wedding, nobody in that place at her wedding was thinking that she would be gone in March, or that we would be having her funeral on April 6th. when stuff like that happens, you can't help yourself. I don't care if you're a pastor. I don't care if you're a friend. I don't care. You ask the question, why, God? Why? Why would would you allow something like that to happen? And so I want to wrestle with that today. I want to wrestle with why. Because that's what the book of Job invites us to do, is to wrestle with that question. And so, uh, we read the first few verses. Here's the prologue. It's called the prologue of the first chapter of the book of Job. Verse 6 gives you a little bit of context to the backstory. It says this, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, from going back and forth on it. Now, I want you to stop. I want you to notice a couple things here because we make a bunch of assumptions about the story of Job without really reading it. First of all, I want you to notice Satan is not part of God's divine counsel. Did you catch that? He crashes the party. So It says the angels come and present themselves and Satan comes too. And God is like, well, where have you come from? So God hasn't been directing Satan where to go. He asks him, where have you come from? And Satan's answer, well, I've been roaming throughout the earth, you know, going here or there. It's meant to be understood as he's sort of thumbing his nose at God. Like none of your business. I don't have to take orders from you. I do whatever I want. He's kind of giving God some lip here is what he's doing. And it goes on from there. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face." The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now notice again, because we make all these assumptions, notice what it says. God actually does not do what Satan asks him to do. Did you catch that? Satan says, you God, stretch out your hand and you strike Job and he'll curse you to your face. And God doesn't do that. God says, here's what I'll do. I'm not going to stretch out my hand, but everything he has, I'll put in your power. I'll allow you to test Job. But even with that, God gives him a limit up to a certain boundary. On the man himself, you cannot lay a finger. So God, God himself doesn't stretch out his arm. He doesn't hit Job. He doesn't strike Job. But what God does is he allows Satan to test Job. He, in Jesus' life, God allows Satan to test Jesus If you're not familiar with it, we looked earlier this fall, this past fall, at the story where Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days before he begins his public ministry and Satan comes and puts him to the test. Three times, in fact, the devil comes, Satan comes and and tests Jesus. And so God is allowing Satan to put Job to the test in this moment. That's what's happening. And so what happens is Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord and he does his worst. He begins to just smash everything in Job's life. He just begins to take, if you read the story, what happens is it's like almost as one messenger is coming with a piece of bad news, the other one is right behind him. A whirlwind sweeps in and knocks down the house and kills every single one of his children. Just like that, he loses all of his kids. His herds, his flocks go down. I mean, natural disasters, diseases, all kinds of things hit him one after another. Everything is taken from Job. He loses everything except for one thing. There's one thing that God allows him to keep, and that's his wife. And if you read the story, that turns out not to be a blessing. Her advice, literally, when when Job is laying there suffering on the ground, she's like, why don't you just curse God and die? (laughs) Thank you, sweetheart. I appreciate that. It's like Satan knows, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm going to take everything from you, but her, I'm going to let you keep. She's the test. So he gets to keep her, and she's not a help to him. And so he's suffering. He's going through all this pain, all, all through this suffering. And so what happens is for the next section, several chapters, just chapter after chapter, the book of Job is basically Job and his friends sitting around trying to explain this to themselves. That's literally what they do. They just kind of get together and they're, they're asking the question that we ask, why? And they're trying to come up with some kind of an explanation. Why has God allowed this? Why is this happening in our lives? And the reason I think that, the, that Job, for so many chapters, is, is taken up with them just sitting around trying to explain it to themselves is because our explanations When we go through suffering, our explanations for why we suffer is actually more important than our experiences. The explanations we come up with in our own heads for why certain events happen in our lives are actually more important than the events themselves. Because you can control your explanations, but you can't control your experiences. Your experiences, they're just going to happen to you. Stuff will just happen in your life. But what you can control is your own explanations. And so Job and his friends for chapter after chapter are sitting there trying to explain it to themselves. Maybe you say, well I don't know. I don't know if that's really true. Let, let me give you an illustration just to, to help you see what I'm talking about. So pretend for a moment like you are uh, meeting your date at a, so you're sitting at a restaurant and your date is supposed to walk in the door. And so you're sitting there waiting for your date. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a loved one. Maybe it's the person that you're dating. You know they love you. You love them. And you're sitting there and now 15 minutes has gone by. And now half an hour has gone by. And now an hour goes by and they are a no-show. They don't show up. What are you doing right now? You're sitting there in, at the restaurant. In your head, you're coming up with an explanation Well, what's happened? I wonder why they're not here. My date is a no-show. Why am I sitting here by myself? How do I explain that to myself? That's what every single one of us would do. And depending on how you decide to explain that to yourself in your head will determine how you feel about it, how you act, how you respond to the situation you're in. So, for example, if the way your date's a no-show, it's been an hour, if you explain it to yourself as saying, well, they stood me up. Well, now you're mad, right? They intentionally just blew me off that, well, now I'm angry. But if, they say, if you explain it to yourself by saying, well, they must not love me, right? You turn it inward. Well, I must not be worth very much and they must not love me and now you're sad. Now you feel bad about yourself. But if you explain it to yourself by saying, well, maybe they were in an accident. Well, now you've got anxiety, right? Wouldn't a lot of us do that? Like if somebody didn't show up that we love for after an hour, we'd be like, man, uh, you'd be checking your phone. You'd be, have a bunch of worry and anxiety about what happened to them. Maybe the way you explain it to yourself would be to say, well, they must be with another person. Now you're jealous. Or maybe you explain it to yourself by saying, oh, they must be working overtime, putting in extra hours, making money for us so we could have this nice day together. And now you feel grateful. You're also a little naive, let's be honest, if that's what you think, <laughs> if that's how you explain it to yourself. But do you see this? However you explain it to yourself in your head determines how you feel and how you act. So let's take this a step deeper here. So in our lives, there are moments where God is a no-show. Suffering happens, tragedy happens, or maybe we've just been praying for something and he doesn't do it and we wonder, what is going on? Where are you, God? God appears to be a no-show in our lives and what happens is how we explain that to ourselves shapes our theology what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves, because our explanations are actually more important than our experiences. And here's all I'm saying with that. Some of you in this room, you have explained events of your life to yourself in a jacked up way. Some of you have the most jacked up explanations in your head for events that have happened, experiences that have happened in your life. And you've explained it to yourself in such a way that you believe certain things about yourself and you believe certain things about God that are just not true. But in your head, you've explained, you're convinced that must be the way it is. And so really what the book of Job is, is it's, it's basically uh, just these two different competing explanations for suffering there's Job and his friends and their sort of explanation for suffering that goes on for chapters and chapters. And then there's God's explanation for suffering that he, that he delves into in the book of Job. And that's basically all it is because our explanations tend to be more important than our actual experiences. And so I'd love to just look at those together if we could for a moment. So. Two competing explanations. Job and his friends, their explanation, if you read it, chapter after chapter, their explanation for why they're suffering and, and why all this bad stuff has happened to Job, they come up with this idea well, God is a control freak and God is making these bad things happen in my life. God is making these bad things happen. Whether I deserve it or not, whether it's fair or not, I, God is making it happen. And despite all my rage, I am still just a rat in a cage, to quote the great Billy Corgan. And there's nothing I can do about it. Some of you, that's where you're at. I cannot tell you how many times I have had conversations with many of you right on a Sunday after church where someone will come up to me and say, I'm just, I'm mad at God right now. Really? You're mad at God? Why are you mad at God? Well, because he made this happen. He allowed this to happen. And, and, and people, we go off on this. God did this. God made this happen in my life. So I'm mad at God. He's not doing what I asked him to do. I say, really? Is that what Job really thinks? T- take a look. This is Job 9, starting verse 17. This is God Job's talking about. He says, he, God, would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He, God, he's not talking about Satan. He's talking about God. God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, God mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, God blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? Seriously, tell me, who is it if it's not God? See, this explanation, the one that Job and his friends have for why they're suffering, it always indicts God. It always blames God. And it always sort of takes on this, this persona of it's, it's God out there. He's sort of this angry kid on, you know, with a magnifying glass over an anthill, just zapping people, whether we've deserved it or not. God is the one who does this. God is the one who, who strikes us. And it must be God if it happened to me. And what's interesting is God actually refutes this explanation in the book of Job. It starts in chapter 38. I challenge you to go read it. It's a very long uh, book of the Bible, but in chapter eight, 38... It says, God answers Job out of the whirlwind. Out of the storm, God begins to answer Job. And what God does is he just lambastes Job with question after question after question. It's like a heavyweight fighter just lobbing these questions at Job one after another. Where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I put the sea in place? Where were you when I told the sea how far it could come and it could come no further into the land? Where were you? It's just question after question that Job has no possible way of answering. And, and all it does is just reveal kind of how small and how ignorant Job really is. And in Job 42 verse 7, what God says is, I'm angry because you have not spoken about me what is right. He doesn't say to Job, Job, I'm angry at you because you asked why. He's not angry at Job for that. Job, I'm not angry at you because you're having a hard time and you're, and you're suffering. I'm not angry at you. He's not angry at Job for any of that. He says, I'm angry at you because you have spoken about me, what is not right. In other words, the explanation you've come up with in your head indicts me, and you've missed it. You've missed the boat, Job. And so God begins to go through his explanation as to why suffering happens. And basically what he does as he begins to question Job is what you see is that for God, he cares way more about what happens inside of a person than he cares about what happens externally on the outside of a person. God is a master of bringing good out of evil. He's a master of taking situations in our life that are meant for our harm and are meant for, our, for evil and bringing good out of it. He's a master at doing that, and he he invites Job into this. In fact, what he does is he wants us to know him more intimately through whatever it is that we suffer. That's his main objective. God's main goal whenever we suffer, he doesn't cause it, he doesn't ordain it, but he uses it, and he reveals himself to us in the midst of it, and he wants us to know him more intimately in the midst of whatever we suffer, You know, what's really interesting about this is God never really gives Job like a straight out explanation for why all this suffering has happened in his life. And it's funny because you're kind of waiting for it. If you read the whole book, you're, you're like, come on, God. You're waiting for God to just say, okay, Job, here's the deal, sit down. Okay, here's what happened. All right, Satan came in, he crashed the party. He was talking a bunch of smack about you, Job. Okay, he was like, yeah, just take everything away from Job and he'll curse you to your face. And you know, I couldn't let him talk about you like that, Job. So here's what I did. Like, you're waiting for that moment. Like, just tell him about the whole thing and why, why it's all happening. God never explains it. He never tells Job why it's happening. He just asks question after question that reveals Job's smallness and his ignorance. And basically, and really that's the point of the book of Job. The whole point of the book of Job is don't forget about what you don't know. When you're suffering, when you're going through painful times and you're asking the why question, remember what you don't know. If you remember your own smallness and your own ignorance, you won't be judging God and indicting God for things that you don't understand. Because he has a purpose, but we don't always get to see it in the midst of what we're suffering. At the end of Job, verse four, uh, chapter 42, Job repents of his bad explanation, his bad theology. And it's kind of the moment that everything in the book of Job, the crescendo that it builds up to Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. So he's recognizing God has some kind of a purpose through my suffering. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So Job comes to this place where he realized that God has a bigger purpose for his suffering than than what he's able to understand. And he he submits himself, he yields himself to God. He surrenders himself underneath that and says, "I, I trust you in the midst of this. And it's actually, this is the turning point. This is the moment at which, if you read the rest of the chapter, Uh, chapter 42, you get to what we read at the beginning, where God blesses Job. He turns around, he gives him a double portion. He gives him twice as much as he has had, and he lives 140 years total. It's just this little tiny moment of his life that he experiences all this. But it's not until this moment right here, where Job surrenders himself and yields himself to what God's purposes are through the midst of it, that that begins to shift and that begins to happen. What's interesting about the book of Job is it leaves us kind of going, well, what was like what was God's bigger purpose? Job recognizes, hey, I'm not I'm gonna remember right now what I don't know. You've got a purpose, and I don't get to see it necessarily in my life, but we're left when we read the book of Job kind of wondering, well, okay, but like why is it in the Bible? Why what what was the bigger purpose God had in allowing Satan to test Job and And you don't really understand the purpose, the bigger purpose of the book of Job until you set it right next to the gospels, story of Jesus. And then suddenly you see the bigger purpose of the book of Job. The book of Job, the story about suffering and pain and death points directly to the story of Jesus, points directly to Jesus as the solution, Jesus as the answer when we suffer and when we go through things. Job was an innocent sufferer, right? He was a righteous man who suffers, and he intercedes on behalf of his stupid friends. And in the same way, Jesus is the ultimate innocent sufferer. The Bible said he lived a sinless life, and he made intercession for us on the cross. He died in our place. And so, through his suffering, Jesus brought good out of the evil of the cross. Job has this moment where all of his friends abandon him, abandon him at the at the worst part of his suffering. And in fact, they don't even recognize him when they see him because his face is so marred from his suffering. And in the same way, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, his, his closest friends, his disciples, betray him. They abandon him, they leave him. And, and Isaiah talks about how they, they didn't even recognize his face when they saw him on the cross because of the beatings and, and what he'd gone through. But Jesus endures and he brings good out of the evil of the cross. And so the whole story of Job foreshadows and points to and says, there's an answer coming. The point of the gospel is not that everything's going great in this world. And if you just trust God, he'll keep anything bad from happening in your life. He'll protect you. That's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is that in the end, God wins. And putting our faith and our trust in the person of Jesus will be worth it. Whatever you're suffering through right now, whatever hardship you're going through, whatever disappointment, whatever unanswered prayer you've got, in the end, putting your faith and trust in Jesus will be worth it because he is a master at bringing good out of evil, bringing salvation for us out of the worst parts of our life. And that's the point. We can't fix it ourselves. We can only turn to him. And so... couple implications of this. You can write these down if you're taking notes. The first one is this, you cannot know that God is good if you've only known him in good times. There's an element to who God is, his character, his nature that you you just cannot know until you've gone through suffering. Jot that down. If you don't need it today, trust me, you'll need it at some point. Uh, I wrote this sentence down in my journal in 2015. I was diagnosed with cancer, and I went through six months where they couldn't tell me exactly what stage it was in, and it was the worst time because all these people, even here and at home and in my family and in my life, had all these questions I didn't have answers to. I didn't know how to, to figure out. I didn't, I, I'm a guy who likes answers. I think you get into this job because a little bit you like to be the guy with the answers. I had no answers. I had nothing. And for six months, and I wrote this phrase down in my journal because I learned that who God is, there's a part of who God is that I know today that I did not know back then about his faithfulness, his goodness, his presence were what carried me and were with me through that time. You cannot know that God is truly good until you've gone through hard times. You don't know what light is like unless you've experienced darkness. You don't know what joy is like unless you've experienced pain. It's how it is. And then the last thing I would say, the implication of this is, and this is probably the most important thing I'll say all morning, we do not have a preventer. We have a savior. The point of the gospel is not, oh, everything's going great. If you just trust me, I promise I'll prevent anything bad from happening in your life. There'll be a hedge of protection around you. No. Jesus came as a savior, not as a friend, not as a coach, not as a wise, just as a wise teacher. Jesus came and we called him a savior because we needed to be saved because this world is broken and bad stuff is happening and will continue to happen. God didn't promise to be a preventer in our lives. He promised to be a savior and that's what Jesus is. So stop indicting God for when something bad happens in your life. And instead, turn to Jesus, the one that God's provided for us, and surrender your life to him. Do exactly what Job did and yield your life to him. Surrender your life to him and watch him bring salvation for you through it. That's what we're called to do. That's what God offers to be for us in the midst of it. Don't indict him. Don't make him the problem. He's the solution. My favorite verse in the entire Bible is John sixteen thirty three. Jesus on the night he's betrayed, he spent three years with the disciples. And in John's gospel, he's with his disciples at the end. And and he says this statement to them right before going to the cross. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Not in something I said, not in some answer I gave you to some prayer, not in some skill or ability of your own. In me, in me myself, Jesus says, you will have peace. He's the only thing in this world that offers peace. But in this world, you will have trouble. He doesn't say, I'm gonna prevent it. Don't worry, it's not gonna happen. He promised, if there's a promise, there it is. You will have trouble. This world is broken and you will have trouble. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Because I've overcome the world, you can have peace in me. And that's the invitation. That's the invitation he gives us today. It's the invitation he gives you It's the invitation he gave his disciples at that time, and that's the invitation we all have to step into. Would you stand up with me? So let's just do some business with God for a minute, if we could. For some of you in this room, maybe uh, you're in a season of life where things are good, and there are blessings. And maybe the takeaway for you this morning, maybe the response to this is to ask the other side of the why question. Maybe it's just to go, God, why have you been so good to me? And maybe it's just to respond with gratefulness and worship and just say, man, I haven't deserved this. I haven't done this for myself. And maybe it's just to say, God, you, you've been so good to me. I'm in this season where I'm just seeing you bring good out of all the stuff in my life. But maybe some of you in this room right now are in a season where everything's falling apart and it just seems like one messenger after just follows another with more bad news and more bad news and things keep breaking and you're in the midst of this place asking why? Maybe you're angry at God because the way you've explained it to yourself is he, he, God is this control freak and he's making these bad things happen in my life. Maybe the response for you this morning is simply to turn to Jesus. You cannot know God is good unless you've known him in the dark times. And he wants to reveal himself to you. He wants to be with you in the midst of this right now. What he, he cares way more about what's happening inside of you than he cares about what's happening externally in you. And what he wants is for you to know him more intimately through this thing that you're suffering, through this thing that you're going through right now. So maybe the response for you is to do exactly what Job did and just to yield yourself, to surrender yourself to the person of Jesus. So that's what we do right now, Jesus. We just come before you and we just recognize you didn't come to us as a preventer. You came to us as a savior. Because this world is broken and things happen that we don't don't get to understand. So this morning, we want to remember what it is that we don't know. We remind ourselves of our own smallness and ignorance and we recognize that you have purposes that we cannot see when we suffer. We turn to you right now. We thank you that you are a father who loves his children and that through Jesus, we are a son, we are a daughter. So right now, God, we surrender ourselves to you. We confess you as Lord and Savior. We ask you to come in. We ask you to give us a new life, to give us a new heart, a new perspective. Would you just begin to do your resurrecting power inside of us, would you give us a new life even from this moment here? Would you be the God who is a master of bringing good out of evil? as we turn ourselves to you, as we seek you, and we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you gave us yourself, your son, on our behalf so that we can know you, so that suffering in our world, suffering in our lives can be redeemed and has a purpose in you. So would you do it again, God? Would you do it in our lives? Would you do it in our city? Jesus, just remind us again of your power to save? It's in Jesus' name we pray.